Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Speaker Johnson says, you know what, next time, guys, we'll, we'll get Mayorkas the next time. We also have a reminder that we really don't know much about our history as scrolls from ancient Pompeii are finally readable for the first time in over 2,000 years. And here's a shocker. UBI experiments end badly. The Washington, D.C. edition. Also, Federalist Papers number five goes under the microscope. I'm Andrew Coppins, and this is Critical Thinking. That, I'm Andrew Coppins. This is a Thursday edition of Critical Thinking. Thank you for joining me. You can follow me at The Coppins Show on social media. That's mainly X and Facebook. Um, the Instagram account we're trying to figure out, and by we, I mean Pat in the background as well as myself, but the, the two of us trying to figure out exactly where we want to go with that. But all of that notwithstanding, thank you for joining me every single Monday through Friday. Make sure you give that follow on your podcasting platform, rate, review, subscribe on that podcasting platform of your choice. And by the way, if for whatever reason I'm not available on the podcasting podcasting platform of your choice, then let me know. I will gladly get it added and we'll take care of that little quirk for you. As always, you can watch this show. It is on the Rumble channel, rumble.com backslash critical thinking, rumble.com backslash critical thinking. And more importantly, you can also watch it on X at The Coppins Show. So with that being said, we have a ton to get into today on the program. And I think up first, we've got to talk about Speaker uh, Mike Johnson. Yes, Speaker Johnson wanting us to know that, you know what? Hey, guys, I know that this thing failed, but we're totally going to get him the next time. Just listen to the video here. Yeah, on impeachment, last night was a setback, but democracy is messy. We live in a time of divided government. Uh, we have a razor-thin uh, margin here, and every vote counts. Sometimes 
uh, when you're counting votes and people show up when they're not expected to be in the building, it changes the equation. But listen, we have a duty and a responsibility to take care of this issue. We have to hold the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security accountable. Mayorkas needs to be held accountable. The Biden administration needs to be held accountable. And we will pass those articles of impeachment. Uh, we'll, we'll do it on the next round. They're going to do it the next time. Now, procedurally, he might be right. Because what ended up happening here is that they were trying to count votes procedurally to figure out whether this was going to pass or not. And the reality of the slim majority is that you've got to be very careful about every move you make, every vote you take. Okay, that's the reality in front of them with only a four vote majority here. So you've only got two to three votes to play with. So you really do have to whip up your uh, base and your caucus, if you will. In this case, it went down 216 to 214. But why? Well, Speaker Johnson might have a clue because Al Green, the Democratic representative out of Texas, wasn't supposed to be there. They, as they counted the votes, they thought they, they could lose three or two, excuse me. They could lose two and be okay. Except for Al Green showed up and then it would have been a 215 to 215 tie. So you had one of, of these individuals figure out, hey, hold up, wait a minute. Procedurally, a, a tie means we can't bring this back up. So let's go ahead and, and see what we can do. And because and the, the voting margin's even slimmer now because Steve Scalise is not available to be voted or to vote because he's dealing with cancer and cancer treatment away from Washington, D.C., which is exactly what he should be doing. Now, all of that notwithstanding, the, the point of this is to say they get it procedurally correct in that if Al Green is going to be able to vote again, we need to make sure that we do have the votes. But the question that does need to be asked here is, is this the right strategy to use George W. Bush's uh, terminology? Is it the right strategy? Is it the right move? Is it legally right? Is it anything right? And I think there's an interesting argument to be made that this is a really terrible strategy. <clears throat> in so much as if we do it, we have now given the power to the other side to do this for, and I've mentioned this, that impeachment is a purely political maneuver. Thus, you have to think through your political strategy. And this is also the argument that was made about killing the filibuster in the Senate, right? If you do it, we get to do it too. You're not always going to be in power. And the argument that the right was making when <clears throat> President Trump was being impeached over and over and over, set aside all the, the legal arguments and the fact that they did it with a faked dossier and this, that, and everything else. Set all of that aside. Look at it from a purely political strategy point of view. What was the argument? We shouldn't be doing this because it perpetuates perpetual impeachments, right? That's one of the arguments being made. We shouldn't be doing this because simply impeaching for policy that you don't like is a bridge too far or simply impeaching because you don't like the character of the individual, a bridge too far, right? Well, 
Mike Gallagher, the representative from the congressional district that I lived in when I was born, raised, and and uh, lived for 30-plus years of my life in Green Bay, um, made a really good argument. And his argument was the following. Secretary Mayorkas has faithfully implemented President Biden's... Wait, what? He's faith... Mm, hang on. Secretary Mayorkas has faithfully implemented President Biden's open border policies and helped create the dangerous crisis at the southern border. But the proponents of impeachment failed to make the argument as to how his stunning incompetence meets the impeachment threshold Republicans outlined while defending former President Trump. In 2019 and 2021, then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi and congressional Democrats used impeachment as a weapon against Mr. Trump. Though they couldn't produce evidence, he had committed an actual crime. It was a rushed, hyper-partisan process that lowered the bar for what constitutes an impeachable offense. Republicans rightly railed against this effort and the dangers of a single-party impeachment. Impeachment for unpopular decisions, impeachment for non-criminal acts, and impeachment for not complying with congressional subpoenas. Republicans rejected the Pelosi precedent then and should reject it today creating a new, lower standard for impeachment, one without any clear limiting principle, won't secure the border or hold Mr. Biden accountable, and will set a dangerous new precedent that will be weaponized against future Republican administrations. It will only further pry open the Pandora's box of perpetual impeachment. I just talked to you about perpetual impeachment. Now, I happen to believe that this is the right strategy this is the right political maneuver to not impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. But Andrew, accountability now. Let me ask you a very simple question. Does impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas change anything? No. Why? Why won't it change anything? It won't change anything because Alejandro Mayorkas is a puppet, a tool, and a tool, but a tool in the toolbox of the President of the United States of America. His task is to execute on the policies, the wants, the needs of the President of the United States of America, who is Joseph Marinette Biden. Impeaching Mayorkas doesn't change the policy. It does nothing to fundamentally alter the open border. And yes, I do believe this is all open borders. Policies of this presidential administration. Now, that is not to say that he is not incompetent at his job. That is not to say that he is derelict in his duty because his duty should be to the Constitution, to the laws, to uphold those laws, but he is also duty-bound to the presidential administration. Can you make the argument that, well, shouldn't he put the Constitution first? Yeah, you can make that argument, but the reality is he is serving at the le jour and jour of the President of the United States of America. So, let me ask you, where does the accountability begin and end? It's with the President of the United States. And how do you 
make the president accountable? That's the question here. Is firing, basically, through impeachment, Alejandro Mayorkas, going to change President Joseph Marinette Biden's mind? No. Why? Because he doesn't actually make his own decisions. The people that are making these decisions behind the scenes are of all one mind. And that mind is to do the bidding of what? Open borders. Now, what did I also say just yesterday on this program about handing your opponents needless wins? This is the other part of thinking strategically here. This is an issue that all Americans are finally paying real attention to and are finally feeling, whether you are a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, whatever you are. This is almost one of the most unifying issues in all of America today. People to the tune of almost 80% don't want what is going on to continue to go on. So what did I just say again yesterday about handing your opponents needless wins on a huge issue in an election year? Well, I said you don't hand them wins unless it solves the issue to your satisfaction. Then it's a win for you as well as the other side. If you've solved the problem, that's one thing. Because that's also a win politically, right? You can point to, hey, we solved the issue. Or we went and got our priorities, thus the American people's priorities, put through in action. Does that ring a bell to you? So let me ask you this question again. What is the win in impeaching Mayorkas? What is the what is the strategy win? There isn't one. Because if you impeach Mayorkas, he goes away. Guess what Joe Biden and his merry band of incompetent boobs get to say? Hey, you impeached him. I put somebody new in place. We need to give that person time to execute. And, well, well. The Republicans aren't interested in solutions. They're interested in the blame game. Biden gets to nominate a new person and look competent heading into the general election. He can just simply say, okay, cool. Now I'm going to switch strategies all of the sudden. You've handed him cover once again, just like the idiocy that was trying to negotiate some sort of immigration deal in the Senate earlier this week. Joe Biden doesn't get to be held to account for the nearly 8 million that will be in place by the time the general election rolls around in November. He doesn't get to be held to account for that. Since, you know, also he threw literally every single maneuver, executive order on immigration that Donald Trump put in place. He threw them all out. Day one. He doesn't get to be held to account for that anymore because he's got the cover of, hey, yo, I did something. Uh, I replaced Mayorkas. I did something. He gets to play that political game and whom is going to run cover for him. 
the entire Democratic media operation. Impeaching Mayorkas accomplishes nothing from a political strategy standpoint and won't change the fundamental policy issues that exist. The accountability lies at the feet of the President of the United States. And unless you're trying to implement pressure to make that change, unless that's the strategy, but what indication do you have that that is something they're interested in doing? You don't. We don't. Nobody does. So, again, what's the plan? This is all chaotic, haphazard BS. The answer, unfortunately, in a uh, Republican version of democracy, is to vote them out of office, to no longer allow that policy in place. Or as I've mentioned before, alternatively, pass legislation that would change things. Change the entire immigration system. Put it at the feet of the President of the United States and lay it on his feet and say, hey, we've given you a potential solution. You refuse to take it. And then you have a fight in the general election. Instead, you're just going to hand them cover for their absolute incompetence. And yes, in my view, not just incompetence of their job, but their absolute condemnation of our immigration system. They don't want anything other than open borders. You need to use that as the cudgel. In an election year, these people want open borders. Their policies, their inaction, their inability or lack of want to actually execute faithfully the laws of immigration. They want to end round it. And then instead you just hand them talking points, hand them cover that way and that way up, down, sideways, everything in between. Why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. Now, we can move forward because I have a story from you, for you, about universal basic income. I, you know, we, we've got some experiments going on in this country and in the argument my side and a lot of other people's sides, but my argument has been, well, this is going to be an epic fail because when you just hand people money who have shown that they don't have the ability to manage money, they don't have an ability to put themselves in situations in which, hmm, um, we'll actually use it for the basic needs, necessities, wants, whatever. Um, and even when you do put those strings like uh, WIC and SNAP and whatever in your area. Even when you do put those restrictions in place, they find ways to end round it all too. So what if I told you that <clears throat> from not the B, 
DC, Washington, DC gave these low income mothers $10,800 and you'll never guess how they spent the money. First of all, what you need to know is 75% of them took the lump sum. <clears throat> but as Cardinal Pritchard points out in the article, in 2022, the DC government announced a pilot program that offered 132 new and expecting low income mothers. $10,800 over the course of a year, no strings attached, intended to assess how unconditional cash payments, aka universal basic income, that's really what this is, could improve their families' outcomes and economic mobility. All 132 mothers had to choose whether they wanted 12 monthly payments of $900 or the entire amount immediately in a lump sum, a unique feature of DC's pilot. Now, that is true. That is a, That was the unique part of this. But again, I just told you, 75% of these people took the lump sum. Now, how about this? One expecting low-income mother, some of it I just left alone. The other side is I wanted to blow it. I wanted to have fun. My kids got to experience something I would never have been able to do if I didn't have that money. The five-day, $6,000 trip to Miami was a dramatic upgrade from the Ocean City and Virginia Beach visits that Miller's family was used to. Joined by the children's father, a boat tour exposed them to multi-million dollar homes and a luxury yachts. Her kids went to a dinosaur museum and saw animals in Florida's swamps they had never seen before. Miller still talks about trying Benihana, a Japanese steak and sushi restaurant, for the first time. Now, great, you got to experience something you didn't, exp you know, possibly couldn't have experienced before. But this is literally what we told you people would be doing. They wouldn't be spending it on the things that would get them out of their station in life, right? that would move them up the economic ladder, they would just blow it. Now, can you make an argument that if you were to attach financial literacy components to this or, or meeting certain goals for this money to be continued to be doled out and, and, and eliminate the lump sum? Maybe I can make an argument that might help some people but also just making sure that they get those tools, maybe having um, classes at the community college that are free for people to learn some financial literacy or tools or ways in which they can become more economically mobile, whether you've got a ton of money or not. Here's a second individual who was a little more um, forthcoming, Salimia Quigley was able to catch up on credit card bills and rent payments she had fallen behind on, then paid her $1,100 rent in advance for a couple of months. But Quigley chastised herself for not using the funds to boost her savings account and wondered if the monthly option would have forced her uh, to have more discretion. To get picked for the program, out of all those people, it's a blessing, Quigley said. But I did splurge. I ain't gonna lie. I went shopping, clothes, stuff I didn't need. It was like, well, I paid my rent so I can go ahead and do this. So in, in, in one breath, this is a good thing because what did we see? Her use the money to 
to actually make herself more economically mobile in this case, right? She got rid of credit card debt. She paid that down. That's a good thing. That is making you more economically free. And then paid the back rent, paid all of those things. But then going forward, she just fell back into the same old patterns because it turns out you actually have to build quality habits. And by the way, the, I'm not perfect when it comes to economic mobility and, and great financial you know, whatever. It, this isn't easy for anybody. But just simply handing people money and expecting them to do good with it, to do the things they need to do. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Who? That's not an easy thing when you see all the shiny objects and this money burning a hole in your pocket. When there's been no clue of financial anything in their background. It, it's not good. Nowhere in the history of handing out money to individuals have we seen this become a positive thing. Handing them the tools for themselves to do these things for themselves has shown us that time and time and time and time and time again. Whether that's through understanding how to use equity in your home, how to use home ownership as a tool to build wealth. I, I talked about it for a long time. Here in Chicago, Hispanic individuals gain more wealth than anybody else because they know the value of home ownership. Even if it's a small home, even if it's only I gained fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. Well, if you're earning forty, fifty thousand dollars, that thirty, forty thousand dollars makes a hell of a lot of difference to your life. It can make you more upward mobile economically. I don't know what I can tell you there, other than to say shocking. Not shocking at all that this is an absolute epic failure. And of course, DC, to end this story, has done what? Oh, they, they decided to take and move that program into 2023 and, and don't know if they're going to renew it here for 2024. But um, yep, they, they decided to re-up that, that program despite its absolute epic failure. People spending it on vacations, And one-time happiness, the dopamine hits of happiness instead of the long-term gain of 
their their ability to steady and right the ship. Asinine. Absolutely asinine. Now, from that to something absolutely positive, we get this headline. Some whiz kids figured out how to read charred scrolls from Pompeii, and we have the text from the very first scroll. So, 10 months ago, um, there was a project launched called the Vesuvius Challenge. It was a challenge to solve the ancient problem of the Herculaneum Papyri which is a library of scrolls that were flash-fried by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. Well, they announced as part of this program that after 2,000 years, they finally have a winner. Um, and th- these people ended up winning a massive um, a massive uh, prize. I think it was something like $700,000. Um, but the image was produced by Yusef M. Nader, Luke Ferritor, and Julie or Yuli uh, Shiliji, who have now won the Vesuvius Challenge Grand Prize of $700,000. There were 15 columns from the very end of the first scroll that they have ever been able to read, and they contain new text from the ancient world that has never been seen before. The author they believe to be Epicurean philosopher Philodemus, writes about music, food, how to enjoy life's pleasures, and then takes aim at perhaps the Stoics of the time, saying they have nothing to say about pleasure, either in general or in particular. Now, they're also going to continue the Vesuvius uh, challenge with the next text um, that we revealed, so far, represents just 5% of one scroll. They believe they can get up to 90%, and that's the next challenge here. But I find it absolutely fascinating, really good news, fun news, because it turns out, as I like to say, we have no idea what real history is. We have no idea because we largely don't know most history. Most history wasn't written or was written but lost or was written but written by winners, and we don't know what the losing side had to say, right? We don't know the fullness of the story. Uh, somebody might have written 100 years after that happened and and whatever, right? It, the point of the matter is that what we are watching is the revealing of real history in the moment. Philosophers, what do they have to say about the times in which they were currently living at that point? 79, that's right, 79 AD. So literally right after the time or around the time, right, of what? Right after Jesus Christ's passing. What might these papyri say? What might the scrolls say about all of this? I think it's going to be fascinating to see. And it might actually change almost everything we know about Roman history. We don't know. I find it absolutely fascinating, like I said, and maybe you do too. So go check it out. It's at Not the Bee. Um, there's also a, I'll, I'll link to it in the description of the program here so you can see all of it for yourself. But um, really, really cool what they were able to do here. 
and finally getting this through. Uh, but with that being said, it is time for us to move forward to look at the Federalist Paper, number five, the fifth essay of 85. And this is a continuation. But before we get into all of that, do not forget now would be a great time to fuel up on some coffeebrandcoffee.com where they care about their coffee, not their politics, your politics, any politics, or any other issue. Simply producing high-quality coffee at a good price, fresh-roasted, small-batched for you. Over at coffeebrandcoffee.com, if you enter the promo code CRITICALTHINKER at checkout, you're going to get 10% off of your purchase, maybe of the bourbon flavor, maybe of uh, your favorite hot chocolate or your favorite tea. Go try it out. That's my suggestion. Give it a try. I think you would really like what they have to offer at coffeebrandcoffee.com where they simply want to do business with people who want to enjoy coffee. What a refreshing, refreshing look at branding. Just saying. Coffeebrandcoffee.com. Enter the promo code CRITICALTHINKER at checkout for 10% off today. With that being said, um, we are moving forward to Federalist number five here. And again, John Jay is at the helm penning this um, essay. And I believe this is the last for a very long time of John Jay and his writings. But this one still continues on the broader subject of union over confederacy, looking at the foreign um, affairs implications of, of, of all of this. Now, we left off with Jay making the argument that weakness and division in America would actually ignite and invite uh, foreign action against us. That's where we left off, right? But in Federalist Number 5, Jay continues this argument, but this time he's actually addressing the idea of regional confederacies, which is something that the anti-federalist or some of the people in that camp were floating at the time. And that could solve the issue of weakness in 13 individual nations, if you will, right? Well, here's the interesting part. John Jay turns to history. Excuse me. John Jay turns to history here, quoting Queen Anne, who dealt with uh, the issue of potential union between England and Scotland, right, in her time. And I'm not going to actually start by quoting any of this or taking a look at it because I find most of it to be utterly boring. But I also do find it interesting that Jake goes to the country that we just threw out of our nation, right? We just literally did a revolution against to show how important unity is. I find that rather interesting from a argumental technique side of things. But I do like his argument for why he decided to go this route, stating that we could learn lessons and we don't have to repeat the mistakes that others made. Saying the following, by the way, quote, the history of Great Britain is the one with which we are in general the best acquainted, and it gives us many useful lessons. We may profit by their experience without paying the price which it cost them. Although it seems obvious to common sense that the people of such an island should be but one nation, yet we find that they were for ages divided into three, and that those three were almost constantly embroiled in quarrels and wars with one another. 
notwithstanding their true interest with respect to the continental nations, was really the same. Yet, by the arts and policy and practices of those nations, their, multi, uh, their mutual jealousies were perpetually kept inflamed, and for a long series of years, they were far from inconvenient and troublesome than they were useful and assisting to each other. I find that fascinating, right? Jay asking a vital question, right? Jay telling us, really, that, hey, they had common interests, yet they continued to fight. And, of course, he's talking about England, Wales, and Scotland, right? And that's really the history of England all the way up until Great Britain becomes Great Britain, is that there's tons of infighting, quarreling, uh, wars fought, and, you know, this uh, part of England fighting that part of England, and yada, 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 this part of Wales incurring into England, and this part of Scotland versus England, and blah, 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 blah. But... Notwithstanding all of that, what is he saying to us? Guys, they were right there on an island nation. We're a continent, not an island. And, uh, you know, we have the ability to be unified and learn the lesson that infighting is likely the main cause of strife instead of unity, rather than the mutual interest that you would have in repelling the foreign powers on the continent, right? Find that interesting. Now, Jay asks the vital question. If division would bring the same results here or not, and he says it this way, should the people of America divide themselves into three or four nations, would not the same thing happen? Would not similar jealousies arise and be in like manner cherished instead of there being quote, joined in affection and free from all apprehension of different interests, envy and jealousy would soon extinguish confidence and affection in the partial interests of each confederacy instead of the general interests of all America would be the only objects of their policy and pursuits. Hence, like most other bordering nations, they would always be either involved in disputes and war or live in the constant apprehension of them. I think this is one of the most important essays in the Federalist Papers to our time because that that question, folks, let me ask you this. Are we or are we not debating that very idea right now? Are, are there not people saying that we need to divide red state to blue state or that we need to, hey, um, the Northeast is all Democrat. The upper Midwest is largely Democrat. The... They, they have culture and values and economies that are virtually the same. So shouldn't we maybe try to divvy things up that way and go our separate ways? Because it's irreconcilable, right? Now, the one thing that Jay does fail to address in Federalist Number 5 is that these confederacies are ideas because, just like I said, the areas like New England, New York, Pennsylvania, the mid-Atlantic states, the southern states. They have already shown to have divergent interests from each other, right? Whether that be in religion, culture, commerce, etc. New England, far different from the mid-Atlantic states. New York, Pennsylvania, different from Carolinas and Georgia, right? Are we not having the exact same argument 
right now are not the same questions about the values, the political leanings, the needs, the wants being very divergent all over this country. Are we not here some 240-ish years later having the same argument? I find it fascinating that we've failed to grapple with this and settle it once and for all, and that we're still remaining in this perpetual state of should we or shouldn't we? Now, it's largely a reminder that we didn't have to necessarily deal with this consequential consequential question because it's down to our or former belief for the longest time in a unified political story, and that's exactly what we thought we were solving or they thought they were solving in this anti-federalist versus the federalist argument over the Constitution. That in a unified nation, we had a political story or formula to tell that was unified. Now, that unification no longer exists today, just like it kind of didn't exist prior to the Constitution. So here we are dealing with the exact same question because just like then, the political formula, the political story is no longer unified. Thus, this, this point, the Federalist, Anti-Federalist point in, in our timeline is the point in which our political story became a unified political story through thinking through the exact same questions that we are having today. Now, some of the questions might be different and some of the concepts and some of the things might be um, different, but I find them to be vastly similar. Are we or are we not literally having these discussions that John Jay is thinking through right now? Now, Jay does go on to note in Federalist Number 5 that the differences were already emerging between the North and the South. And he asks very important questions as to what would happen to a union divided in that scenario, saying the following. The North is generally the region of strength, and many local circumstances render it probable that the most northern of the proposed confederacies would, at a period not very distant, be unquestionably more formidable than any of the others. No sooner would this become evident than the northern hive would excite the same ideas and sensations in the more southern parts of America, which it formerly did in the southern parts of Europe. Nor does it appear to be a rash conjecture that its young swarms might often be tempted to gather honey in the more blooming fields and milder air of their luxurious and more delicate neighbors. They who well consider the history of similar divisions and confederacies will find abundant reason to apprehend that those in contemplation would in no other sense be neighbors than as they would be borderers, than that they would neither love nor trust one another, but on the contrary would be a prey to discord, jealousy, and mutual injuries. In short, that they would, uh, that excuse me, in short, that they would place us exactly the situations, exactly in the situations in which some nations doubtless wish to see us vis-a-vis formidable only to each other. Basically, Jay saying, 
a nation divided is good for everybody else. So maybe we should stay unified as a nation for our own good. Now, as Federalist number 5 comes closer to the end, Jay also deals with the claims of the Anti-Federalists that these so-called maybe three, four confederacies could still form alliances of protection, war-making, as they need to. Thinking them to be absolute fools, pointing out historical facts once again, saying in, um, in almost the end here of Federalist number 5, quote, when did the independent states into which Britain and Spain were formerly divided combine in such alliance or unite their forces against a foreign enemy? The proposed confederacies will be distinct nations. Each of them would have its commerce with foreigners to regulate by distinct treaties. And as their productions and commodities are different and proper for different markets, so would those treaties be essentially different. Different commercial concerns must create different interests and, of course, different degrees of political attachment to and connection with different foreign nations. Hence, it might and probably would happen that the foreign nation with whom the Southern Confederacy might be at war would be the one whom the Northern Confederacy would be, be, the, would be the most desirous of preserving peace and friendship. An alliance so contrary to their immediate interest would not therefore be easy to form, nor, if formed, would it be observed and full, uh, fulfilled with perfect good faith. Basically, he's making the argument that now you've got divergent commercial interests, you've got divergent political interests, and what of the divergent political interests would happen here? Is the North more affectionate towards the South, or its Treaties. Simple geography versus treaties. And what if those treaties become um, hostile to the South? How, how do you handle that? I think it's a very valid argument that Jay is making here. But then he asks the important question. Who's more likely to act on their opposing interests? Nations far away? or confederacies right next to each other. That's right. That's exactly what he brings to the table at the end here. Saying, Nay, is it far more probable that in America, as in Europe, neighboring nations acting under the impulse of opposite interests and unfriendly passions would frequently be found taking different sides? Considering our distance from Europe, it would be more natural for these confederacies to apprehend danger from one another than from distant nations, and therefore that each of them should be more desirous to guard against the others by the aid of foreign alliances than to guard against foreign dangers by alliances between themselves. And here, let us not forget how much more easy it is to receive foreign fleets into our ports and foreign armies into our country than it is to persuade or compel them to depart how many conquests did the Romans and others make in the characters of allies? And what innovations did they, under the same character, introduce into the governments of those whom they pretended to protect? I'm going to leave you with this question to ponder. Does Jay's argument against confederacy and for a strong, unified government to take on foreign jealousy sway your thoughts on the talks of disunion 
and confederacies, blue states versus red states, or geography, or mutually esteemed culture, if you will, does it sway your thoughts one way or the other? For me, I believe it does. I believe it showcases that we have to be careful of which we don't know. Otherwise known as maybe the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. I think it's a very compelling argument and it gives us pause to think through our time. And that's why this one I find to be, I think, at least the most important that we've read so far, but also the one most relatable to our day and time. And with that, folks, I hope you have a great rest of your day. As always, please be smart, be safe, be kind, make sure you eat all of your meals today. And as always, Matthew 547. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.